Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 7th, 2020. Right now it is Thursday morning, and once again we have our friend TruthVids with us to d- continue our discussion addressing Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? This is part four of our series, and I'm going to get right to it, right to it because TruthVids has something about Weissman's name that he wants to discuss. So here we go. Hello, TruthVids. How are you doing? Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's great, great to be here. Uh, yeah, mostly I've been speaking to the Christogenia. Uh, members uh, about the podcast usually they just mock my accent uh, you know they always say that I say war and stuff like that and make fun of me but um, they also preferred instead of Charles Weissman we began calling him Charles Kikeman but <laughs> I guess we'll just stick with Weissman um, yeah as for the the surname it's interesting that his name is Weissman clearly a German name but he spelt it with one N at the end. And if you look into the history, you know, the reason there's so many uh, Jews with German names, it was mostly because they were forced to have surnames given, Uh, you know, the Austrian uh, empire and German empire forced it on them and they banned quote unquote Hebrew names. You know, we, we all know how the Jews love to call themselves Abraham, Moses, Levi, or, you know, Jacob, Solomon, etc., uh, etc. Et so they wanted to get rid of that. So they were forced to pick German names rather than the usual, you know, Moses, Solomon, Levi names they tried to pick. And many of the Jews could not speak German fluently. Instead, they spoke Yiddish. Uh, they would claim Hebrew, but Yiddish. And so they just picked names, you know, common names, However, because they couldn't speak German fluently, they would have man with one N, the English, you know, spelling rather than two N's at the end. So I just thought it was worth mentioning that Weissman is with one N. That's not, you know, that he would be of Jewish ancestry, um, you know, but you can see it in many of the common, uh, you know, infamous Jews like Silverman, Ackerman. Ackerman just means plowman, but it's always with one N. And if someone has a surname with two N's at the end, generally, uh, you're more likely that they would be an ethnic German, as in a white Adamite rather than a Jew. So I just, just before we started the podcast. The, the, um, I'm sorry, you dropped out at the end there. The, the connection is... Um not the best at times. I apologize for that. That the, <clears throat> and I've, I've, I've seen a lot of Germans and Jews growing up in, in and around New York City, North Jersey, that the um, Thuman was the name of a bakery that had very popular products and Entermans. And I believe they both had two ends at the end. That man part had two ends. That the um, I, I never really <clears throat> paid much attention to the difference. When you see certain names in New Jersey, you automatically think Jew, because they're German names. 
if you saw the same names in Wisconsin or the Dakotas or Indiana, where there's a lot of German settlers, that then you would automatically think German. A Rosenberg from Wisconsin is probably German. A Rosenberg from New York City, it is, well, there's chances that it's probably a Jew instead with a German name. That's just the way we thought. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I despise the fact that there are actually Jews with my last name. And, and people, my, some of my detractors say, oh, that's a Jewish name. But it's not. It's been a German name. It's recorded, a, a recorded historical German name since the 12th century. So it's certainly not a Jewish name. But that's something that um, a lot of Germans in, in America have to live with because so many Jews have taken German names. But I think you're right to, um, if, if I was German, I would be proud of my name and I wouldn't want to drop an N from the end of it. I would want to spell it the way my father spelled it. That's the way I think. Yeah, exactly. Keep your heritage. So to drop that N, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 Charles Weissman, I don't even know. He was from Minnesota, I think, which is a, a, is a large German community, a large presence of resettled Germans in, in Minnesota. But the one N, it, it leaves open the question. It begs the question. There's no doubt. Well, thank you for that and, and for that, that distinction. Jews spelling German names would not really care about that second N, I guess, because <clears throat> they're not really German. As we said at the end of part three of this series, in, in refuting Charles Weissman's lies, we have necessarily gotten ahead of him. So we are going to have to repeat ourselves later in our address of his book. For example, at the end of the book, there is a section on witchcraft, Gnostic, and Masonic beliefs, and the Talmud and Kabbalah. Weissman is thereby slandering our understanding of scripture by associating it with all of those wicked writings. And that is ad hominem, rather than legitimate debate. I don't know anybody in, in Christian identity, any um, pastor or teacher of Christian identity, whether it was Compare or, or um, Wesley Swift. Now, Wesley Swift did sometimes quote the Kabbalah. Don't get me wrong. He quoted a lot of writings that I would not have ever quoted, but he didn't quote the Kabbalah to prove his position regarding 2C line. He didn't quote the Kabbalah to defend 2C line. And none of the other 2C line Christian identity pastors and teachers that I know of ever quoted the Kabbalah to explain 2C line. So that's a slander. That's an ad hominem. It, it's a straw man argument. It's not legitimate debate. And we addressed some of that in the beginning of the last presentation in part three that we made last week. Following that, we addressed Weissman's contention that the seated woman in Genesis chapter three refers only to Christ himself, which is not true. 
and we expose the lies about Hebrew grammar, which he created in his attempt to prove that it is true. We also address many of the citations he made from various denominational commentaries, which make the same insistence that Christ alone is the seed of the woman, and we refuted them. But on the other hand, we pointed out how a few of them actually agreed with us and not with Weissman, something which he evidently didn't understand or did not want to understand. Then we demonstrated the folly of the statements made by Weissman and some of the commentaries which he cited that claim that Satan was somehow eliminated at the crucifixion. When it is clear in scripture that Satan was still around, still in the world, 30 years when Peter and James wrote, and 60 years when John wrote the Revelation. He was still around 30 and 60 years after the crucifixion, as it is professed in the epistles of the apostles and in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If Satan was eliminated, Satan would not have his seat at Pergamos in the messages to the seven churches. The apostles themselves describe for us what Satan is, and Satan is still with us today. Apparently, we shall discuss Satan much further on when we address part three of Weissman's book, which is subtitled The Serpent, and, and perhaps we'll be able to get to that in part five of this presentation. If not, then definitely in part six. With this, we covered the first 14 pages of Weissman's book, except for the missing first chapter. Now... A friend in California, a longtime listener and an identity Christian for much longer than there has been a Christogenia website, has sent us a copy of Weissman's book. And another friend in Ohio, also a longtime identity Christian, had also offered to send us the material we were wanting. So we are thankful to them both. I scanned the missing pages as I wrote them. And I will include them here with this presentation when, when it's posted at Christagenia. Clifton's copy, which I know he has, continues to elude me. But when I received word that I would receive a copy in the mail, I stopped looking for it. In that first chapter of his book, Weissman professes that the concept of seed line is of utmost importance in scripture, even to the point of admitting that Christianity could not legitimately exist without the concept of seed line. But then he makes a mistake in saying, but since there are many different seed lines spoken of in the Bible, it is erroneous and misleading to speak of a single seed line doctrine. And with this, I must disagree. There are indeed only two seed lines spoken of in scripture. And all other seed lines or families are from one of the two or a mixture of both. We will discuss this further when we address part three of Weissman's book. You might think, oh, there's a, there's Assyrians and there's Babylonians and there's 
Persians and, and all of these other people in scripture, well, they all came from either the tree of life, from the family of Genesis chapter 10 nations, or they were not created by God. And in the creation described in Genesis. And the only quote-unquote people not created by God had to be branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're either of the tree of life, which is the creation of God and the Adamic race, or you, you are from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to take a little digression. In, in Genesis chapter 14, there are Rephaim, and the Rephaim are giants. And in Genesis chapter 6, we read, and there were giants in the earth in those days. And those giants are Nephilim, which means fallen ones. Now, the giants in the earth in those days are the source of the Rephaim. And, and we're going to prove that. But in Genesis chapter 14, the Rephaim are mentioned with other people, the Enims, and that just means terrors. There are people that are terrors. That's all they're called in Genesis 14. Where did they come from? And Zuzims, and that means roving creatures. So until Charles Weissman can tell me that Yahweh God created Enims and Zuzins, roving creatures and terrors, and their people. I, I mean, I think, Truthridge, you might call them taco goblins and squat monsters. <laughs> yeah. Where did they come yeah. from? Yeah, Who people might them? people might find it confusing that, you know, you have Negroes over there and, and chinks over here and you know, people living in the jungle in South America, but they all originated from that rebellion and you just have uh, God's creation and then you have corruptions. It's as simple as that. They, they might, the corruptions might not all look like each other, like uh, us, the white race do, but as you know, they come from the same source and you're one or the other, as Paul said, sons or bastards. It's as simple as that. That, that, um, South America, I was looking at the elongated heads of Paracas just the other day. I was looking at a video of these elongated heads, and the conventional explanation is that they tied boards to their heads in infancy, and, and um, their parents would tie boards to their infants' heads in order to deform them purposely. But some of these deformed heads are much more massive than the normal human skull. And the tying boards to the head thing does not account for the size of these skulls. <clears throat> you could deform your skull. That's not going to actually um, add double the material to it to make it twice the size. Uh, I mean, I'm not convinced. Yeah, and it would. No explanations. Sorry. I was going to say it would make sense if they were ruled over by these beings with the long heads that they would try to copy them, you know, the, the primitive beings that are there. It would become part of their tradition because well, they right. saw them like gods. Right, absolutely. That the, um, in, in Mesopotamia, we know from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and in the scriptures we know 
from the, the records of the scriptures. Agab Bashan was a king. He was a rethane. He was a giant. And <clears throat> he ruled over a, um, a large section of, of these Amalekites, I believe they were, or perhaps they were Amorites. But he, he was a king, and there were other kings that were giants. And we see the same thing in Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is a giant. He's mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls as one of the Rephaim or giants. And he was a king that ruled over these cities. And we see that in, in um, Greek legends as well and, and in other inscriptions. And, and it's, it might seem beyond belief to us, but it's also a matter of our scripture that these giants were kings and warriors and, and ruled over cities, even Adamic cities, they came to rule over. Rule over. So this is, is not really fantastic. If, it's, if we find it in our inscriptions as well as our scriptures, we have to um, consider this as a serious part of the history of, or the prehistory of our race. This first chapter, getting back to the psalm, we'll address these two seed lines when we discuss part three of Weissman's book. Getting back to our first chapter, overall, Weissman's first chapter is a fair representation of what we call traditional so-called two seed line and what early identity pastors had taught. At Christagenia, primarily referring to myself and to Clifton Emmerheiser, we have departed from those traditional two seed line beliefs to something which we have always believed is founded upon a much firmer foundation. However, I can't possibly explain it all in a single podcast introduction, so I, I will have to leave that here for now. I've already explained it in great detail in the 28-part 28, 28 Pragmatic Genesis podcasts or in the 11-part Bible Basics podcasts, and if there's only time for someone to read or listen to one podcast, then I would suggest the more recent identifying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I did about two or three months, four months ago, perhaps probably about four months ago. Weissman concluded his short first chapter by saying that on the surface, the doctrine seems to make sense, or at least seems plausible, especially in light of the nature of the Jews. So right there, Weissman indirectly admits that Jews have a sinister inherent nature. But then he continues and he says, but this doctrine suffers from some bad interpretations of scripture <clears throat> and is based upon some non-biblical notions. And that's all a lie. <clears throat> there is no assertion of two seed line doctrine found anywhere at Christogenia, which is founded on anything non-biblical. And we will have this detailed discussions of that later in the series, but we already have. And finally, Weissman said, we will take a look at why the main aspects of the doctrine are not biblically valid. 
and why the confusion surrounding the doctrine exists. And we have already refuted many of Weissman's contentions, and we will ultimately refute them all. The only reason why there is confusion surrounding the doctrine is because of men such as Charles Weissman and Ted Weiland and Pete Peters, Stephen Jones, and a long line of other clowns who have purposely caused that confusion. Once the Bible is properly understood and all of the parables and revelations of Christ are considered, there is no possible confusion except in the minds of those who hate the truth. I know you're going to want to comment on that first chapter of Weissman's book. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy that he seems to understand, you know, the basic of two seed line, at least there, and he recognizes the evil of the Jews. And when you especially understand that Weissman did quite a few books, you know, other ones, he did one on the races. He clearly understood that uh, all civilization was white. As soon as it race mixed, it crumbled. And he understood that the Jews were Esau, they were Edomites. But he never took that next step to recognize, you know, why they were evil and where the Edomites, or sorry, what made, um, you know, where Esau race mixed with the descendants of Cain. He just refused to believe that. And it seems, you know, in this last book, he's actually defending the Jews rather than exposing, you know, the truth. And he refuses the simple words of Christ. His books were really popular in identity circles, and, and they're really fuzzy to me. I mean, I read The Origins of Race and Civilization. I read his book, Who is Isari Dam? I read them in late 1997, perhaps early 1998. So I don't very well remember them because there were things about them that I rejected then at that time. He, he, in Origins of Race and Civilization, he recognizes the existence of markedly different races of men and recognizes the fact that some of them existed long before our Adamic race existed. So where are they created? In Genesis. In Genesis, <laughs> I... I you might want to split that sixth and eighth day creation, Genesis 1 and 2, but that is not true. There was no eighth day creation. In Genesis, Yahweh God created one race of man. He's describing the same creation two different ways in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. They were originally separate books, separate scrolls. I've proved all this at length in Pragmatic Genesis. There's only one race of Adamic man that was created. And there are, why would he call, why would Yahweh call a different race of men Adam by the same name? Why? That makes no sense. That's, that is accusing God of being the author of confusion. That's crazy. And, and in, in Genesis chapter five, when you talk about, what, when the scripture talks about the um, the birth of Seth, and, and it says this is a book of the generations of Adam, and it hearkens, it, it evokes language that was used 
of the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 1. It quotes or cites or repeats the language of Genesis chapter 1 in Genesis chapter 5. They were the same creation, and it's being discussed in various ways in those early books of Genesis, those early sections of Genesis. So, uh, I mean, where did these other races come from? And Weissman refused to answer that question because they weren't created by God. They were. I mean, the angels were created by God, but he didn't make them rebel. He didn't make them fall. And he cannot be held responsible for their sin where they mingled with, with each other or with whatever they mingled with and created bastards. He didn't do that. He can't be blamed for that. You, you could look at Genesis chapter 6 and you could say, well, God created the angels and God created the men. But when they mated and, and gave birth to these hybrids, God didn't create the hybrids. He can't be blamed for that. So Weiss, in the origins of race and civilization, Weissman does not um, consider what could be the origin of these other races. And in Who is Esau Edom, I do remember being critical of that book because it didn't explain why Esau's descendants were rejected. I think he believed that Cain was cursed, but he was actually an Adamite. Which, which is crazy. That means that anyone today, if they do evil, that their whole line could be cursed in theory, which which doesn't add up with the rest of the Bible. We don't see that in Scripture. Exactly. Christ, the, the, these kings of Judah were all cursed. The, the curse of Jeconiah, for instance, that the curses that there was a curse upon David, that the sword would always be in, within his house, that his house would always, they would always um, be divided one against another and, and seek to slay each other. And, and we've seen that throughout history that the, um, and, and throughout the scriptures. And, and we saw it in David's own sons when, when David's own son turned on him. And, and I believe two of his sons actually turned on him. Well, well, that the um, the the fact is that when these men were cursed, that didn't make all of their descendants cursed. Their descendants suffered the results of the curse, but the descendants themselves were not cursed. That the um, earthly parents of of Joshua Christ descended from some of those cursed kings. That didn't make them cursed. Mary wasn't cursed. Joseph, Joseph of Nazareth wasn't cursed. So, so that's crazy to imagine that because one individual is cursed for his behavior or his thoughts or his attitudes or for whatever reason, for some sin he committed, that all of his descendants would be cursed just because the ancestor committed a sin. That's not true. That's not the way it works. That's not uh, founded in scripture. We suffer the results of the curses, but that doesn't mean we are cursed and that we will be rejected in the end. The only thing that 
tells us that we'll be rejected in the end is whether we are sons or bastards. And Paul explains that sons suffer trials and they are corrected by those trials. But if you're not corrected by your trials, you're not a son, you're a bastard. <laughs> it's pretty simple. If you're a bastard, you'll never be accepted. Paul said that Esau was rejected because he was a fornicator and a profane man, referring to his race mixing. So his descendants would never be accepted. And in order to understand that, we have to examine Esau's wives and who they were. And that's the only explanation. I don't know if that, that there's no other explanation. We've already refuted many of um, Weissman's contentions, but with this, we will commence from where we had left off in Weissman's book on page 15. Under the subtitle, The Enmity, Weissman continues to attempt to limit the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to Christ himself. Doing so, he ignores large portions of scripture, only cherry-picking what is expedient to his assertion. He opens the section by stating that the proponents of the Cain satanic seedline doctrine make much of the supposed enmity between the serpent seed and the seed of the woman. They say this enmity exists now between the serpent's descendants through Cain, which say they are Jews, and the woman's seed, which is said to be the true Israelites or the white Christian people. And, and this is one fault I, I have with all of the early um, two seed line teachers, pastors, whatever you want to call them. And, and that's the fact that they oversimplified the message. And, and they oversimplified it to the point of, of where it can be criticized like this, where it can be caricatured. I don't know if you have any comment on that. What, where they just say it's um, us against the Jews rather than all yeah, non-whites right. versus whites. Right. The much broader picture that, that we can't have alliances with non-whites to take on the Jews. That's, that's just self-defeating and stupid. Right, it, it leads into all of those dangers and, and those, basically, they're heresies. That the, um, first, the seed of the woman was the entire Adamic race from the time of Seth. And the enmity has always existed, even over 5,000 years before Christ. The slaughter of Abel was the first expression of that enmity, for which Seth was a replacement for Abel, not for Cain. And the race mixing of Genesis chapter 6 is also an expression of that enmity. And that enmity, that, that, that these fallen angels going after the daughters of Adam and sleeping with them caused destruction upon the entire Adamic race of the time, out of which only Noah and his family were saved. 
The enmity is evident in pagan literature, such as the ancient Sumerian creation myths, in which a giant serpent, Tiamat, is said to have created the world out of chaos. In Genesis, it is Yahweh who had created both the world and a garden for the man which he also created, and his creation was in an orderly fashion. The garden distinguished what he created from the land of Nod, a word which means wandering, and wandering was used very often as an allegory for sin. So in the Bible and in ancient pagan literature, we see the diametrical perspectives of two opposing sides. One side is from the pagan perspective, so it's actually from the perspective of the devil. And one side is from the perspective of our God who created all these things, who created the world and did so in an orderly fashion. But the fallen angels who rebelled against God, they made it chaos. So their world was created from chaos. Furthermore, Paul in Colossians in chapter 2 attributed the pagan religions to the worship of angels. And much of the Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Greek pagan literature, which survives to us, coincides with that revelation. Although what Paul called angels, the pagan literature considered to be gods or goddesses. But except for the children of Israel, the entire Adamic world went off into paganism, the worship of the fallen angels, and nearly every other Adamic nation was consumed by it. Ultimately, race mixing itself into obscurity, as you said that Charles Weissman admitted in his other book, In the Origins of Race and Civilization. Before the call of Abraham, even Abraham's own fathers were pagans, which is revealed in Joshua chapter 24, by which we may see what it was that Abraham was called out of and why it is that his seed was to be preserved and to inherit the earth. So, in the Revelation, the children of Israel are the remnant of the woman's seed. They're what remains, because all those Genesis chapter 10 nations would be cast aside by God for their paganism. They didn't have any promises of continued existence. Now, it's plausible that some of them are still around us today, are still with us. There's other prophecies that inform us of that, such as um, Genesis chapter 9, where it says that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem, and other prophecies concerning Egyptians or Assyrians, but they're not recognizable according to those Genesis 10 nations. They're not any longer, they might be Slavs today, or or in Southern Europe or wherever, but they're not recognizable and, and we really can't account them until the end of the end of time in the final judgment that the, um, the children of Israel were to inherit the world. And by the time of Christ, they already did. 
as Romans, as Scythians, as Parthians, as um, Phoenicians, who were later known as Britons or Irishmen. That's how they inherited the world. Bill, do you think it was um, these descendants of Cain spreading out throughout the world that caused the doom and um, primarily responsible for the um, fall into paganism of all the Adamic world? Well, well, the children of Israel were pagan by the time they began to colonize the Mediterranean as Phoenicians. They're called Phoenicians in history, but they were the Israelites of Tyre, and the Bible proves that. But the Bible and some other extra-biblical historical sources, such as Flavius Josephus, um, proves that. Well, that the they were already pagan. They were converted to paganism, at, in in well, they were dabbling with paganism. They were pagans in Egypt. They were converted. That they were dabbled with paganism all along the way. That the golden calves in a desert and things like that. And and when Jeroboam one became the king of the ten tribes, he immediately converted them back to the worship of these golden calves to paganism. Yeah, and the only way we've ever. Um successfully divided the wheat from the tars was with Christ's gospel uh, throughout history. That That's the only way it really, truly successfully worked. Absolutely. And that was the whole point of it, right? And and it, there's no doubt the Canaanites in, in Tyre and, and in northern Israel were slaves to the Israelites. There's no doubt that some Canaanites were, were with the Israelites as they were the Phoenicians, as they were merchants throughout the Mediterranean, as they made colonies throughout the Mediterranean, there's no doubt that there weren't some Canaanites and even some Philistines with the Dorians who migrated from Palestine through Crete into Greece in the 12th century during the Judges period. There's no doubt that there couldn't be some Canaanites among them, first as slaves and, and perhaps later as freedmen. But that doesn't mean that all the Dorians were Canaanites. That doesn't mean that all the Phoenicians were Canaanites. But yes, that that um, that enmity was always going to exist, and and those tares were always among the weed. That doesn't mean we're all Canaanites, but those tares were always among the wheat, just like they're among the wheat all over the place where you look today. Yeah. And I'm sure there were conversos in those days, too. I have no doubt. That's just a fact of, um, a, a, a fact of life that we always have to consider. And, and we have to consider that when we look at Greek history. But we can't identify this Greek as a Canaanite or that Greek as a Canaanite. We can't do that. I mean, there's no basis for that. We can't prove anything by that. The Greeks were very um, racially conscious to the point where Herodotus, who, who was a Dorian by race, thought that Cyrus, the king of Persia, whose mother was a Mede, but his father a Persian, Herodotus thought that Cyrus was a mule, was a bastard. 
because of that fact alone. And there's a lot of other indications of that attitude among the earliest Greeks. That doesn't mean they were perfectly racially pure and separate, but it was a prevailing attitude all throughout the ancient world. So, in the Revelation, the children of Israel are the remnant of the woman's seed. Although that woman is properly the collected people of Israel, the correlation with the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 is nonetheless valid. It's still valid. Secondly, as we have explained here and elsewhere, the seed of the serpent would include more than the descendants of Cain only. If the serpent is a fallen angel, then it may include all of the fallen angels and whatever abominations came out of them. Since the corruption of the creation of God, the chaos of Tiamat, is the cause of their fall. And that's something which is evident in the Enoch literature, but which is now missing from our Bibles. And I'm, I'm going to go, go into an explanation of that. The serpent is identified as one of the fallen angels in Revelation chapter 12. So since he was already in the garden, the fall of the angels had to happen before the creation of Adam and the events described in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I've had people, and I've had people, I won't mention names, I was going to mention names, but I've had people challenge me and say that Revelation chapter, Revelation is only a vision of the future. And that's not true. The prophets don't only speak of the future. In Isaiah chapter 45, we read, um, show me the things that have been and the things that will be, and we will see that ye are gods. And I'm paraphrasing, <clears throat> but that, that is a challenge to the that which Yahweh God made to the false gods of, of the pagan the, the pagan Israelites and and the pagan idols that he can reveal both the future and the past when history has forgotten that past and the revelation reveals the past in certain places as well as the future. And there are other references to the past in the Revelation. For instance, in the description of, of the world empires that would rule over the children of Israel, where it says that there are seven kings and, and five are fallen, and one is and, and the other has not yet come, it's revealing that before that period of time, there were five other world empires before the Romans, which is the one that is, right? So it makes other references to the past in, in order to um, reveal to us the things that Christ wanted us to know. So this prophecy in Revelation chapter 12 of the fallen angels it has an application even for the time when it was given, and it has 
very possibly multiple fulfillments. And I believe that it does. And I've explained that in my book, Christreich, my commentary on the revelation. But if the fallen angel who led the rebellion against God in Revelation chapter 12 is identified as that old serpent, and if the language used by John in Revelation is past tense language, which it was, then it's revealing something that happened in the past because that old serpent can only be that serpent in the garden. So the fall of the angels occurred before the creation of Adam, before the events which we see in Genesis chapter 3, for that serpent and a whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil to have been there in the first place. So in Genesis chapter 6... And, word... and as you said... I'm sorry, go on. Sorry. No, go on, please. I was just going to say, and as you said, in, in all the pagan religions, we've always had that concept. Right. I'm sorry. You know, that's behind everything. And in the revelation, Christ finally reveals it all and makes it all crystal clear for us. You know, we were the people who, uh, you know, got the truth finally. Absolutely. That's why we have a revelation. That, that's why we have. Exactly. You just hit a very good point. Because in, in um, Paul told Paul told his readers not to pay any mind to um, fantastic fables or genealogies, to vain genealogies. If you read the Greek literature and the origins of people and tribes, you'll see that there were battles between the gods and the giants, the titans, the battles of the titans, and, and then you'll see that the, um, the Titans actually um, prevailed to come down to Earth and mate with earthly women. And all of the Greek tribes had traced their origins back to one union or another between a god and an earthly woman. And you'll... The, the best place to see that is something called the Theogony, written by Hesiod in the 7th century BC. And that's what they believed. And they are, that Theogony gives these extravagant genealogies from the gods down to the tribes of, of the men of Greece and, and other tribes. And that's the vain genealogies that Paul's telling people to pay no mind to because the scriptures tell us the real origin of the Adamic man. And, and the Greeks, we find their ancestors in Genesis chapter 10. That, that's why we have these. That's why we have. Yeah, so, so all the religions were pretty close. Right. It's, it's a refutation. Yeah, so they was all pretty close, and they had the myths, and then you could finally go to him, you know, one of the apostles or, um, you, you know, someone spreading the gospel and say, no, 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 you, you are close. And some of those myths, you know, in Revelation and the scripture, here's what really happened. Right, exactly. 
and and there's a lot of that. That's why, yeah, you get movies such as Zeitgeist that that take um, that exploit some of the parallels between the Bible and the pagan literature in order to subvert the general opinion of Scripture. But the truth is that throughout the Scripture, Yahweh God and and later Yahshua Christ are claiming these ancient symbols and truths. They're claiming them for themselves. You know, in Isaiah, Yahweh had poked fun at the king of Babylon by calling him Lucifer because he really wasn't a light bearer. He was told, you are just a man and I'm going to bring you down. You're not the light bearer. In the Revelation, Christ claims that for himself because he is the righteous and true light bearer. So he says, I am the bright and morning star. He's taking that ancient concept of the king as the sun on earth and saying, no, this is all, this is all wrong. This ain't true. I am the source of the light. <laughs> so once, once this, that these um, parallels are looked at from the correct biblical perspective, everything is rectified. All the questions are answered. So the serpent is identified as one of the fallen angels in Revelation chapter 12. And since he was already in the garden, the fall of the angels had to happen before the creation of Adam and the events described in Genesis chapter 3. So then, in Genesis chapter 6, the word for giants, giants which were already in the earth, is Nephilim. And that's the plural form, and it can mean fallen ones. There is no other logical explanation which is consistent with all scripture for their appearance and actions in Genesis chapter 6, except that these are the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12, the angels which left their first estate in Jude, who became bound in chains of darkness. And notice that, yeah, you know, if you look at the language, and Peter says the whole thing, the same thing, that they're bound in chains of darkness. If you look at the language, they're bound in chains, not in darkness. They're not tied up in a pit. And I know that that was the early um, Catholic interpre interpretation of that passage, but that's not what it says. They're not bound in chains in darkness. They're bound in chains of darkness. That's, there's a big difference there. <clears throat> and in the Enoch literature, it is said that they corrupted their own seed. So we interpret that as genetic chains of darkness. So wherever they or their offspring appear later in scripture, under various other names, they are always accursed and designated for destruction. That's why these people are cursed. Not because they had bad thoughts or because some ancestor had committed a murder or some other crime. They're cursed 
because they themselves are bastards. For example, the Anakim, the Anakims of the King James Version, are described as descendants of the Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13, where they are also called Nephilim. But in other places, they are described as giants and mighty men, just as we see in Genesis chapter 6. Other groups descended from the Nephilim were the Emim and the Rephaim, along with the Kenites and other groups. None of these were destroyed in the flood, although it is certain that neither were any of them on the Ark of Noah. They're still with us today. Continuing, Weissman makes an argument which is based on his false conclusion that Christ alone is the seed of the woman. As we explained, if this is true, we do not understand how, after the Christ child was caught up into heaven, the dragon was wroth and went off to make war with the remnant of the woman's seed. But as we said, Weissman is cherry-picking scripture in order to support his own wrong conclusions. So Weissman states that it is also said that this enmity continues to the present. But if the seed of the woman primarily means Christ, then the enmity is with him. Now, this is Weissman drawing a false conclusion from a false premise. And he says, and in fact, it is at an end, since Christ had victory over the serpent. Let us look at some New Testament verses that are cross-referenced to Genesis 3.15. And, and we're going to look at those verses. But we've already proven that Weissman is wrong because the serpent still has power in the world long after the cross of Christ. Because the serpent goes off to make war with the remnant of the woman's seed. And the serpent sends a flood out of its mouth after the woman in Revelation chapter 12. And there it is definitely talking about the future because it's talking about a time after the Christ child was caught up into heaven. That only happened one time with the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1. When else could that have happened? And if that's not what it's talking about, then how many Christs do we have? <laughs> There's either more than one Christ, or it's talking about where the Christ child is caught up to heaven. It's talking about the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1. That's the only thing it can be talking about. Or we have more than one Christ. He can't have it both ways. I wish I could sit down and discuss this with Charles Weissman because I would destroy him. I know that he would not be able to answer that question. He'd have to really twist scripture to answer that. So, Weissman says, let us take a look at some New Testament verses that are cross-referenced to Genesis 3.15. And I would say that first, just because verses are cross-referenced in one Bible or another, and there's several different cross-reference systems, if you open different Bibles, you'll see that some of them share the same cross-reference system. 
And that's because they just borrowed it from an older Bible. But some of them have different cross-reference systems because there were several cross-reference systems developed by different denominations over the centuries. Just because verses are cross-referenced in one Bible or another does not by itself make the references valid. I have seen scores of nonsense cross-references over the years made to support just about any doctrine that some church could imagine. I've done, I've done every once in a while when I'm doing my commentaries, I'll be running on a, on, on a verse or two verses or whatever, and, and I'll think to myself, I wonder what the cross-references say about that. So I go look, and I'll open up my NA27 or my um, King James Study Bible or the traditional Zondervan's cross-reference that, that um, Clifton used to show that some cross-references do prove to seed line. And I open up one of them and I look at the passage and I look at where they reference it to. And I go back and I check the reference. It might be in Psalms. It might be in Isaiah. And I'll think, why the hell did they do that? Why do they think that that verse should trace back to that particular Old Testament passage? And, and sometimes they just don't make any sense. But Weissman's false premise also necessitates another wrong conclusion that Christ had victory over the serpent. So evidently, in Weissman's mind, perhaps it does not matter that Satan would gather all nations against the camp of the saints, at least a thousand years after the Christ child was caught up into heaven. How does he do that? How does he rectify that? He doesn't bother. He doesn't mention it because it would disprove his thesis that Satan came to an end at the cross of Christ. What we have in, in Revelation 12, the, that old serpent, the dragon, Satan, and the devil are all equated. They're all different terms describing the same entity. And then in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years after Christ rules with the saints, Satan gathers all nations against them. How does the power of Satan end at the cross if Christ, if, if Satan is able to attack the kingdom of Christ a thousand years later? This is Weitzman so glaringly wrong. That's a glaring mistake. No true student of scripture should make that mistake. None. <clears throat> yeah, and you only have to look at any white city anywhere in the world over a certain population, and, and you can see this flood. Uh, the Jews are just so good at it. They've, they've literally flooded every single city with this you know, the serpent has fl flooded us with these, you know, these mongrels, these mesmers everywhere. And, and it's just right in front of our eyes. If the Jews are fulfilling that role, which we see assigned to Satan in Revelation chapter 20, then it is only plain common sense that the Jews are Satan. <laughs> it, how could 
anyone who ever heard this message, who ever saw these things correlated and put together, how could anyone go back and read the scripture and come to any other conclusion, especially the conclusion that Satan and the serpent had ended, had, had, had been um, brought to an end on the cross. If the Christ himself says that Satan is going to have um, power and efficacy in the world, a thousand years after the cross, Christ himself said that. So Weissman knows better than Christ. But to <laughs> it's incredible. I, I don't get how anybody could say that that ever really studied the Bible. So Weissman, you know, if if something is so obvious that an idiot could understand it or that a child could understand it, if something is that obvious and Weissman didn't understand it, even though he claimed to be a, a um, expert on the law. And, and a pastor of, of, of Christian pastor and teacher of the scriptures. And he missed that. He had to be missing it on purpose because he was a deceiver. There's no other explanation. You can't deny the elephant in a room when he's standing right in front of you. I, I don't get it. We might miss, I, I mean, I'm sure I miss things in scripture. I'm sure I miss things that are obscure or I might appear to miss things that maybe I don't think are important, but you know, this is glaring. This is a glaring lie that Satan and the serpent ended at the cross. And I know that a lot of the denominational churches teach that same lie, but it's a glaring lie. When you read the epistles of the apostles and the revelation, Satan's still around. He has his seat in Pergamos. He walks around devouring men. He, he, he's an antichrist. He, he denies that Jesus is the Christ. He, he, all of these things that the apostles say and that we see in the Revelation, he makes war against the seed of the woman. Um, wow. How do you say that, he's, that it's gone? Yeah, he must have had an agenda. That, yeah. that, that's the only explanation. Yeah, you know, a, a universalist Catholic or, or a universalist Baptist, I, I could give an excuse to, but because they have learned that the scriptures, according to the, this um, Schofield system and the Bullinger system, and, and they were systems that were created by the Jews to undermine modern Christianity back in the 19th century. And if you learned the scripture from one of those systems, you better just erase your brain. You, you know, like you hold a magnet to a floppy disk and it erases all the information on it. <laughs> or in, in modern terms, you hold a magnet to a USB key, a, a, a USB dongle, and it erases all the information on it. If the magnet's powerful enough, it'll erase it. It'll erase a hard drive. Well, these people that learn the scriptures according to Schofield or Bollinger, they need to put the magnet to their head and erase their brain and go back and read the Bible <laughs> from the beginning. That's why, as Clifton believed, that's why Christ said that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become as a little child. You have to humble yourself, 
Stop making um, presuppositions. Stop believing that the worldly systems of religion and study the scriptures with a fresh perspective, especially when you come to Christian identity. When you come to Christian identity... Is that the... Um, what, when, sorry. Is that the wineskin parable as well? Would that be referring to that? Absolutely. Don't put that new patch on an old skin because both of them are going to rip. Right. Or, or that new wine in the old bottles. Because when the new wine ferments, the old bottle has already been expanded. It can't expand anymore. It's already at its limit. You put new wine in it and the wine ferments and the bottle's going to explode. The wine sack is going to explode because it can't. You're going to fill it up with new wine and, and put a cork in it. And, and it's just going to break apart because when the wine ferments, it creates gases and it expands. A new wineskin has space for that expansion. And an old one doesn't. So and we see that phenomenon when um, people with you know, baggage uh, from denomination churches, they try to accept CI or partially, and then you just see them explode, that they just can't handle it, and, you know, they just go back to, you know, they give up on CI and go back to what they used to believe. When I um, started to study CI seriously in, I mean, from the scriptures, in, in I read all the CI materials in 97, I sat and started to study the scripture deeply in, in early 98, and that's when I decided I was going to try to teach myself Greek and stuff like that. Well, well I followed a lot of the cross-references and realized that these cross-references were created by these Judeo-Christian churches, and they, they had this Zionist, um, Jew-loving corrupted form of Christianity. So the last thing you want to do is learn Christianity from the cross-references. Because the cross-references aren't part of the original scripture. Paul didn't make those cross-references. Luke didn't make those cross-references. They made citations from the Old Testament. But these cross-references reference things that are outside of the citations many things outside of the citations, and not all of them are legitimate. A lot of them are just nonsense. And I recognized that and decided to forego the cross-references and that I would have to do my own cross-referencing in my mind with the concordance. That's what, that's what you have to do. You can't... Um, Okay, Judeo-Christianity comes to the conclusion that the Jews are Israel and we're just all Gentiles saved by grace, none of which is based on Scripture, none of that, except on their corrupted systems that they created in order to uphold that false premise. So if you go by those cross-reference systems, you're going to come to all the same wrong conclusions that the Judeo-Christians have. Because Jews made most of those cross-references. Or they're based on Jewish knowledge. You know, Bullinger, Bullinger, Numbers in Scripture, the Bullinger Bible, he got all of his learning from Jews, from the Masoretes. That Numbers in Scripture, a lot of that's based right on the Kabbalah. The interpretations of the Kabbalah. Bullinger didn't do us any favors and Schofield is the same way he's no better 
He made the best Bible that Jewish money could buy. To support his lies, Weissman cites three passages. The first is Colossians chapter 2.15, where he says, or I'm sorry, where Paul says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, speaking in reference to Christ, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. But that does not mean that Satan was eliminated on the cross. A few verses later in that same chapter of Colossians, Paul mentioned the worshiping of angels, warning the Colossians not to participate in the pagan religions which had their origins with the fallen angels. Then Paul warned them away from sin, and he said, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also sometime walked when you lived in them. A little further on he told them to walk in wisdom towards them that are without redeeming the time. So there were children of disobedience, who were without, or literally outside, walk in wisdom towards them who are outside, meaning outside of the body of Christ. Paul never expected the Colossians or any other Christians to try to convert them. In his epistle to the Ephesians, which was written only a short time before the epistle to the Colossians, the same Paul of Tarsus warned them to prepare themselves spiritually, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Saying that, he also warned them, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, notice, here's the real um, dishonesty in Weissman's using this citation from Colossians chapter 2 where Paul said that Christ spoiled principalities and powers. He made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Weissman quoted that passage, those exact words, in an attempt to tell us that Satan was eliminated at the cross of Christ. But the same writer, a short time before he wrote Colossians, wrote Ephesians, where he said, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So if Weissman is going to cite Paul of Tarsus in Colossians, saying that Christ spoiled principalities and powers in order to prove that Satan ended at the cross, then why didn't the same Weissman read Paul's epistles to the Ephesians, which was written at least 25 years after the cross, actually 30 years after the cross, because Paul wrote this in Rome, where he said, we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. 
So Weissman quotes Paul to prove his point, but Paul makes Weissman a liar. Weissman is a liar. So while Christ may have spoiled those in authority, he had not yet eliminated them. And Christians, those who are properly Christians, who descended from the seed of the woman, were left to deal with them. We were left to deal with them, to wrestle against them, as Paul explained in Ephesians. Paul wrote his epistles to the Ephesians and the Colossians in that order while he was a prisoner in Rome in 61 or 62 AD. That is 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So Weissman cites Paul's reference to Christ's having spoiled principalities and powers as evidence supporting his statement that the enmity of Genesis 3.15 is in fact, and this is a quote from Weissman, is in fact at an end since Christ had victory over the serpent. However, the same Paul had written in Ephesians a short time earlier that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Both Christ and Paul had referred to his adversaries as the princes of this world. So who was correct, Weissman or Paul? If Paul is correct, and if the revelation is correct, then Weissman, plain and simply, is a liar. And we agree with Paul. And we also believe that Weissman is a liar. I, I don't know if you want to comment on any of that. But that's another glaring yeah, yeah, so Bill, mistake. I'm sorry. So ahead. that spiritual wickedness in high, in high places, that would be the, the rot, the cancer behind society that the Jews do behind the scenes where they um, corrupt our society. Not necessarily, you know, the Jew lives next door or the Nignog they've moved in. It's that, that cancer they put upon our society that we have to fight. Well, well, right, and, and in a, the democratic society in which we live, the Jew next door always validates the unseen um, wealthy Jew who is behind the corruption of all our governments. The Jew next door always validates that Jew. That they support all the same platforms, all the same agendas, objectives, even though he might simply be a, a carpenter or, well, I doubt that, a, a banker or a clerk somewhere in a factory. He's always going to support the objectives of the unseen demons who have corrupted all of our governments throughout history. But that being said, the Jew next door looks innocuous, appears to be harmless, might be a nice guy, yet you might work at the same factory. Of course, you lift, you, you lift boxes all day and he pushes a pencil or something. But no, that, that's the way it works. <laughs> but that Jew, when he goes to the polling place, when he goes to the voting booth, when he goes to the city council meeting, when he gets involved in, in anything in the community, his actions and the opinions he expresses almost always line right up with those of, of the, the 
the Chabad rabbis and 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 the the liberal progressives in government and and all of these other poisons that we have throughout our society. That being said, in the Revelation and in Daniel, great empires are described as beasts. And in Revelation chapter 13, where one of these beasts are being described, we read that the dragon gives its power to the beast. And if you look at every great empire in history, which we can have enough information to really know about, we see that the usurers and, and that these dragons have always been behind the, the nation that rises to an empire and rules over other nations, always. That's a pattern in history that once you actually do the examination is unmistakable. Every great empire was bankrolled by the dragon and, and carried the philosophies of the dragon. And, and look at the English Empire. It was banked by the Jews in London. The, the Jews in, in Holland first tried to, well, first they propped up Spain, and that didn't work out too good for them. So they fled to Holland, and they propped up, they propped up the Dutch, and, and the Dutch were, were um, reached a quick peak because when England was opened up to the Jews, that they fled Holland and they all went to London and, and they propped up the British Empire. That then after the First World War, in, in that period, they were transitioning to, to America and they propped up the American Empire. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a never-ending pattern. The dragon, so, so the, 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 the American Union, which was a collection of distinct um, nation states, each colony being a nation in its own right, that that was destroyed, that concept was destroyed with the American Civil War that the Jews had, had provoked. And then when the uh, America became transformed into an empire, it, it started conducting wars overseas. And we got involved in the European wars. And, and that was all done by their plan because the dragon always gives its power to the beast. That, it says right there in Revelation chapter 13. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Now, how? Even though I do not believe that this is a prophecy of America in particular, I don't believe that. Revelation chapter 13 is not a prophecy of the United States Empire or the English Empire, but it's a prophecy which exhibits something that's always been true throughout history. Every beast, every empire which rises has its power from the dragon, and the dragon appears in a form which the people worship. And today, the people worship the dragon in the form of Zionism and world Jewry. 
the Jews, the dragon. Paul said that Satan was sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God. That's the same Jew that we have in every position of power today. Today, they use different forms. Today, they're corporate executives, they're bankers, they're skions of wealthy banking families like the Rothschilds, and they're George Soros and, and Nelson Rockefeller, and they have their tentacles in every government in the world giving its power to the beast. And they have several beasts. There's an American beast, and there's a Russian beast, and there's a Chinese beast, and behind every one of them, you'll find the Jew. But at the same time, they've bought and purchased Christianity and corrupted it so that today, American churchgoers, they worship Jews instead of Jesus. And Weissman, and people like Charles Weissman, are preventing churchgoers, they're preventing even so-called identity Christians, because there's probably more identity Christians outside of two seed line than those who understand it. There really are. They're preventing them from seeing that truth. And Charles, that's what Charles Weissman is doing. That's the role that Charles Weissman is filling, preventing people from seeing the whole truth, which is right in front of your face. You can't possibly not see this unless you purposely not see it once it's been shown to you. Weissman is purposely not only not seeing it, he's purposely not only refusing to see it, but he's steering others away from it with these lies that he's created. This whole book is nothing but lies. Continuing to seek support for his wrong conclusions from cross-references, Weissman then cites 1 John chapter 3, where it states, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, Weissman suggests that if any of us sin, meaning white Christian Israel, we are of the devil. But that is a lie. No man is without sin, as Paul had professed in his epistle to the Romans, while citing David in the Psalms, that no flesh can be justified in the sight of God. But Christ had also told his apostles, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? But that statement cannot be associated with any sin that any of them may have committed or that any of them may commit at some point in the future. The apostles were all mere men. So which of the apostles were without sin? If we make the claim that one of the apostles were without sin, then we make God a liar. Because the same John 
in that same epistle said that if we claim that they're without sin, that we are without sin, then we make God a liar. That's in 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, as Paul also said, all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, one of the apostles was a devil, apart from the fact that all men have sinned, but they all sinned at one time or another, and only one of them was a devil. But Christ said, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Paul had also admitted that he had sinned in Romans chapter 7. Of all men, only Christ himself was without sin. So Paul had written in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. The same John that wrote that passage, which Weissman quotes in 1 John chapter 3, also wrote in the very next verse, in verse 9, Weissman stopped at verse 8. The same John wrote in verse 9 that who, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, the Bible makes manifest the fact that the children of Israel and all true descendants of Adam are born of God. John does not say that whoever does not sin is born of God, since all men sin. He cannot be saying that, because he also wrote in chapter 2 of that same epistle, after he said that if we say mm -hmm. that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, in chapter 1, he wrote in chapter 2, if any man sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, cannot be interpreted in a manner which is inconsistent with or conflicts with 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 since John cannot be interpreted in a manner whereby he is forced to contradict himself. So once again, Weissman is caught in the act of creating a lie in order to support another lie, in order to try to prove another lie. This a, um, and, and this is a little complicated, it's a little deep, but I felt compelled to include it here. There is a distinction in which Weissman 
and most translators of the New Testament conveniently miss. John actually used distinct words in reference to sin in his first epistle, which have different meanings. There's a peculiar word describing the act, or, or I should say, I'm sorry, there is a particular word describing the act of transgressing, which is hamartano. And that is a verb which means to miss the mark of a spear thrown or an arrow shot. Generally, it's to fail of one's purpose, to go wrong, and then to do wrong or to err, to commit an error or to sin. Then there is a related noun, hamartia, which means a failure, a fault, an error of judgment or guilt, guilt for something or sin. So where John urged his readers that they should not sin, he naturally used the verb hamartano at the beginning of chapter 2 of his epistle. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, and he told them that if any man sin, using the verb hamartano, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins using the noun hamartia. But in chapter 3, where John said in verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. John didn't use that verb, hamartano. Rather, he used another verb, poieo. And poieo has two general senses. It can mean to make or to do, to make or produce, to create, bring into existence, invent, bring about, or cause. Or it could mean to do, to practice, to be doing, to act, or to operate. So, this is the verb which John had used with the noun, hamartia, as its object. To make sin, to create sin. But the King James Version just translated just translated the word here as he who sins. It's saying much more than that. If John were referring merely to the act of sinning here, he could have used one word, the verb hamartano. Instead, John was referring to something else, which is to the authorship of sin, to the creation of sin, or perhaps the ongoing practice of sin. And I believe that earlier in this series, earlier in our discussion, you would mention this, that, that the Jews have always um, pandered sin. They've always peddled sin all throughout our history. Is that what it means? That is that what John's referring to here, or or is he referring to the uh, origin of sin, the fallen angels creating the sin from the very beginning, or, or a bit of both? Either interpretation is still valid. Either interpretation is valid. It, if you look at medieval Europe and and the feudal system and and the simple lives that most people led, and they traded in barter. They never loaned it usury. 
They didn't attend brothels. They were Christians. They had wives. They raised their children well. They kept their daughters as virgins until they married them off. They had to, or, or their daughters would be of no value to anyone and, and never get married. In, in, in the ancient world, if your daughter was a whore, you were stuck with her forever. You couldn't get rid of her. You could take her and put her off in a temple and leave her to be a temple prostitute. That's the only way you could get rid of her because nobody wanted to marry her. Nobody wanted to marry a woman that had one lover, never mind the 50 or 60 that's probably typical today. Who did that? Yeah, and um, only, Who only our that? societies can we have a thousand years history where we've been able to follow you know, this code. The, the Jews have never been able to do it. Right. And, and in, in modern times, when the Jews undermined the Jews of Europe, undermined the feudal system through the secret societies and, and the cause of the revolutions, beginning with the um, French Revolution, most notably, we, we have, um, and the Cromwell Revolution, the glorious revolution, because the Jews were behind that too, what we've had Jewish panderers, Jewish whoremasters, Jewish pimps, Jewish um, gamblers, the pornography, the entire pornography industry is Jewish. The entire casino industry was originally Jewish. Las Vegas was originally founded by Jewish gangsters, and those big casinos were built by Jewish gangsters. What we, what we have... Um, the Jews have, have, were the usurers of Europe. Christians would not loan money at usury ever until the 16th century, perhaps, or the, or the late 15th century, when the Catholic Church actually started to permit pawnbrokers to operate. And, and they weren't called pawnbrokers back then, but <clears throat> they were basically pawnbrokers. That was the beginning of the acceptance of usury in Europe. A thousand years after Europe had fully accepted Christianity, a thousand years after it began to accept usury. And, and that was about it. Satan started climbing out of the pit at that point to get to where we are today. Well, <clears throat> that, that <clears throat> introduction of sin into every aspect of our society happened with the rise of Jewry in Europe and the emancipation of the Jews where, and you're correct for raising this point, <clears throat> it's very good, in the Enoch literature we see that the fallen angels are blamed for introducing all of this same sin into the world. Into the world of that time. The phrase. Yes. And also, Bill, um, in, in, in terms of, um, sorry, in terms of, um, you know, uh, an error, a sin, um, what, what John's saying is that we shouldn't do that, that we need to be corrected, our original program, how we should be. But the, you know, the Jews and all the non-whites, they are corrupt themselves. So, uh, you know, your analogy, like a computer program, 
a corrupt program is going to generate corrupt code. So that they're always going to be corrupt no matter what. Oh, absolutely. And and Weissman himself admitted this in that 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 first chapter that we were missing for so long. He talked about the fact that 2C line makes sense in part because of the nature of the Jews. The Jews have done these things from generation to generation to generation, and they've been doing it forever from generation to generation. They've never had any good nature. That they've, that they've never, okay, for 80 years, they've consistently denied Christ and acted in an anti-Christian manner. And they've hated Christ from generation to generation, not for 80 years, I'm sorry, for 80 generations, or however many generations there have been over the last 2,000 years, which is at least 80, counting 25 years um, as a generation. For, for 80 generations, they've been antichrists, and they still are today. And, and where they're not overt antichrists, they're usually atheists, or they profess Christianity, but they profess a perverted, corrupted version of Christianity by which they mislead Christians or their conversos that have undermined Christian institutions by perverting and distorting biblical doctrine, like Charles Weissman is doing, making blatant lies in the, in, in that, that are absolutely contradictory to the Bible. So that they, their behavior pattern never changes. And it's the same behavior pattern that was outlined in the Enoch literature described of the fallen angels. It's not a coincidence when you, when you exhibit the same behavior for 80 generations. It's not a coincidence. That phrase, hopoion tain hamardion, that, that should have been properly translated as each who is practicing or each who is creating sin. And John maintained the distinction throughout his epistle where it is evident that he is speaking of a peculiar class of people who are among those who have no propitiation in Christ. Because when we sin, we have a propitiation in Christ, but the devils have no propitiation in Christ. Before John said these things, which Weissman only half-cited in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, John said in chapter 2 that many antichrists had already been born into the world, speaking of Jews, the people that became known later as Jews. And John said in verse 19 of chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He's speaking about the Christ deniers of the first century Judeans that became known later as Jews. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, meaning that they had a peculiar origin, they didn't, they were not Israelites. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. In other words, they would have become Christians also. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. He was speaking of Jews, 
He was speaking of, and you mentioned this earlier this evening, he was speaking of the distinction between the wheat and the tares. If they were wheat, if they weren't tares sown by the devil, if they were wheat, they would have been Christians. John's saying they came out from us, but they were not of us, explaining to us that it's the gospel that divides the wheat and the tares. As for the descriptions of the act of sin in John, at Christogenia, there is a lengthy article on this subject. It's one of the earlier, earlier essays that I had written, and it addresses the details and is found under the title Sin and the First Epistle of John that, that shows that distinction, which John tried to make all throughout his epistle, but the denominational churches have ignored the distinctions in John's language, that the distinction between a sinner and one who is creating sin. They just ignore that in their translations. And, and that's been a problem right from the beginning, right from the first English translations of Scripture. Last in his list of citations, beginning his two-and-a-half-page discussion of the enmity, Weissman quotes Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where it is also speaking of Christ and says that through death, he, meaning Christ, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. To this, Weissman then responds and says, Christ destroyed the serpent of Genesis 3.15 and set Adamic man free of the bondage of sin and death imposed upon them by the works, or he says, acts of deception of the serpent. If Christ was destined to destroy the serpent and his works, it is logical that there would be enmity between him and the serpent and no one else. And they are... Weissman's words. Now, this is true insofar as that is the purpose of Christ, but it is not in the context which Weissman places it, because, as we have shown from Scripture, the devil is still with us. The devil still has power over us. The devil still makes war with the seed of the woman unto this very day. If the flooding of the Christian nations with beasts from all of the non-Adamic nations is not the flood from the mouth of the serpent. If it is not the gathering of the nations against the camp of the saints by Satan, then we are hopeless to interpret the word of our God because it is these things which are also prophesied in the Old Testament in diverse ways, such as Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. But Weissman, citing this passage in Hebrews, did not cite the entire passage. Here is the complete King James translation. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Weissman only quoted the second half 
of that statement. Paul explained that the children were partakers of flesh and blood first. And then, because of that, Christ himself took part of the same. Christ is God incarnate as a man, so he might destroy the works of the devil. The children taking part in flesh and blood first proves that the concept that the children of God are a genetic entity from the Old Testament is still valid in the New Testament. But why is Weissman once again pretending to be citing an entire passage, but only citing half of it, leaving out the important half? And that can only be because he is purposely only telling half of the story. The three verses of that chapter, which follow, fill out the picture Paul is drawing, where he said, for verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, the race of the children of Israel, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Men still sin, and men are still tempted, because the culmination, and I should pronounce that sucre, perhaps, because the culmination of these things has not yet transpired, as after Christ ascended to heaven, as we read in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Christ. The dragon would be making war with the remnant of her seed who have the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ didn't come to the nations until after the cross. So the dragon was still making war with the woman at that time, after the cross. The children, who are the partakers of flesh and blood, and in Hebrews chapter 2, are the seed of the woman with whom the dragon makes war in Revelation chapter 17, and therefore the enmity is not yet ended. But Weissman insists it is ended. It's incredible that he, he perverts this. It's incredible that he's trying to manufacture these lies, and I'm sure it did convince a lot of people. We know people that it has convinced. That's why we're doing this series. Hopefully when <laughs> they look for Weissman's book, they'll find this series in Christagenia, and they won't be fooled by his lies, his deception. And he... Isn't he one of those people creating sin? Isn't he manufacturing sin? I'm not going to, it, it's, we're late. It's almost um, an hour and 45 minutes, probably. We should probably end this here and we'll just have to come back to this topic next week. <laughs> I was hoping to finish with chapter two of Weissman's book this week, but it, it's, I, I mean, It'll be two and a half hours if I keep going. I'm sorry. 
we we've had a lot of digressions. <laughs> I think they were necessary. I don't know if yeah. you have any comments, but it, 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 I mean, please feel free. Well, well mostly that um, he, he keeps trying to um, make it as though there is no Satan that, you know, just get on with your life, that don't worry about it and just accept, you know, us being flooded and destroyed. And it's very clear, you know, why would Christ even have to return if, you know, if Satan's gone? What, what would be the point? It wouldn't be necessary. <laughs> Well, well, right. And, and the purpose, we, we were told in Scripture, and, and it's pretty plain in the words of Christ himself and in the, the words of the prophet Malachi, that before the return of Christ, there would have to be the Elijah message. The that the, the um, spirit of Elijah would have to come before the return of Christ, and in Malachi, when Elijah returns, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and we see that as this two seed line Christian identity interpretation of Scripture, because it's the only valid interpretation. And it's the only um, form of Christianity which fulfills that prophecy in Malachi that the true um, I, I don't, I don't, pastors or proclaimers of the gospel would be turning the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children, meaning that we are focused on the importance of the message of race in scripture. If, if you think that, 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 that there is no devil, then the next logical step is to think that perhaps these Jews can be converted. Christ never tried to convert them. He only promised them destruction. He only promised them that they were going to be judged and, and destroyed. <laughs> and we pray that day comes soon. Well, well, the only explanation is that they their origin is indeed with the devil. Because that's the only way that their destiny could be. The lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the only explanation. If God created them, if they're from God, which Christ denied, he told them very plainly in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil, and you are not of God. And in several other ways, he disclaimed that their origin is with God. So there are two fathers. There's God the father, and then there is their father, who was a devil. How could that be? Unless 2C line is true. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know if you have anything else, but we could probably wrap this up here, and we'll be back on it next week, but we will get a little further next week. I, I, I'll try my hardest to abbreviate the... Um, the, the introduction and the summary information so that we, no matter what we discuss, we will finish with chapter two next week.
<laughs> yeah. No, that's a great point to end. So um, praise Yahweh, God of Israel and all our ancestors, not the God of the Kikemans out there, the Nignogs, the Sheenies, the Jew bastards and all the devils. Thank you, Bill. Praise Yahweh. And, and you can't leave out taco goblins because I think you coined that. <laughs> that taco goblins. If you didn't coin it, you own it. <laughs> we'll trademark that. <laughs> Thank you. Praise Yahweh.